Our scripture reading this morning is Luke 5, 27 to 32, and it can be found on page 1095 of your pew Bibles. Luke 5, 27 to 32, before we read, let's ask for God's blessing. Father in heaven, as we turn to this passage, and even as summarized in the hymn we just sang, Jesus sinners doth receive. We pray, Lord, that in this text we would see an opportunity to grow, that we would see an opportunity to convict ourselves of sins, perhaps, that we fall into, thinking of ourselves perhaps better than what we are, thinking of ourselves in self-righteous terms. And so we pray, Lord, you'd convict us of that self-righteous attitude if it ever and, and does creep up into our hearts. And we pray as well that we would be encouraged and comforted by that truth, that the physician has come to the sinners of such are we. We pray then, Lord, that we would hear this word and that it would not come back void into our hearts, but would fill our hearts and transform our lives for your glory, we pray. Amen. Luke 5, beginning in verse 27. After this, he, that is Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. This ends the reading of God's word. If you are a listener to Ligonier Ministries and the, the media and sermons they produce, you may have heard this story that R.C. Sproul tells of his time in the Netherlands doing his graduate studies. Apparently, he was on his way back to the house he was staying at with his, where his landlady was, and as he was approaching the house, there was an elderly woman passing by the other way, and she had something of a blank face. And R.C. had greeted her and said good day or good morning, whatever time it was. And he said that her face just lit up like a light bulb. All of a sudden, she, she started babbling and talking to him and, and just wanting to talk and, and was so amazed that he had spoken to her and, and had greeted her. And so this went on for a few minutes. And then R.C. bid her farewell and, and went in the home where his landlady was. And as he entered the home, the landlady began to, to yell at him and was quite furious, telling him, how, how dare you, how could you speak to that lady, to that woman? And as she calmed down, she explained the situation. Apparently, this woman had been a, a, a collaborator with the Nazis in the war and had given them aid and information, had, in essence, turned traitor on her countrymen and had provided information that proved to be, for many, quite, quite sad, quite, quite a, a, a shame and injury had come from what this woman had, had done. And in fact, this own, R.C.'s landlady and their neighbor had suffered, not perhaps at her own hand, but at the hands of others, 
as Nazis would gather sons to bring them back and impress them into slave labor camps for military purposes. This lady had her son and the neighbor's son face that very threat, and they had, they had dug a, a room underneath the house so that if that had happened, they could hide their sons away and, and then not be taken, and this did happen. They put their sons there, the Nazis came, they asked if they had sons, they said no, and they came into the house, weren't persuaded that these women were telling the truth, so they, they began to shoot through the floor, seeing if, they, if the women would react. And eventually the, the Nazis did leave, and the, the women, in great fear, went to the trap door, opened it, came down to, to find their sons actually okay. But R.C. saw through this story how much hatred, how this woman would hate anyone who had helped those people, who had brought this danger into their own family, and had, had turned their backs on their countrymen. It's one thing to face an enemy who gives information to their own side. It's, it's one thing to, to recognize an enemy and know them as such. It's another thing to have your own countrymen turn and be a traitor. It brings with it a greater seething hatred, and that's what this woman had. And you see how the woman R.C. had greeted had lived her life since that time, though it had been almost 20 years earlier. She didn't expect anyone to greet her. She had become that outcast, someone the, the people of the nation, the true patriots, had no time for. And I think that story, as R.C. tells it for this text in his own sermon, I think that story helps give to us a, a, an idea of the hatred with which, with which Jews had for these tax collectors and these sinners. They were their fellow countrymen who turned on them. They were their fellow countrymen who had who had turned to their other side, were aiding the oppressors and aiding Rome, and not only doing that, but even abusing their own countrymen, stealing from them, having them extorted or beaten up. That's who Jesus calls. That's why this is a scandalous call. He calls this tax collector Levi, or another name for Levi is Matthew, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus calls him as he's conducting this business. If you could use this illustration, it's almost like Jesus calls the lady as she's giving information to the Nazis. It's kind of like that. He's engaged in the work itself. And he calls him. And what's the point? What's the point of this text? Verse 32 supplies it for us. Jesus has come as a physician to bring sinners to repentance. And, and apparently, and this... This is the truth we'll unpack and, and is shocking to us. Apparently, there's no sinner that's too great a sinner for Christ. There's no sinner that he is unwilling to bring that message to, that message of gospel transformation. And this is very similar to the, the stories that have gone before, but now in a new way. So before we've seen the truth, Jesus will cleanse the leper. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. But now this story gives to who will that be? And then you take the pariah of the society, the tax collectors and sinners, and he not only keeps company with them, he calls them to service. He calls one of them to service. They don't deserve it. And he calls him. He says, follow me. We have no idea here in the Gospel of Luke what Levi had known about Jesus before this. 
how well he had heard of him? Had he seen him conduct any miracles? Has he heard him preach before? We have no knowledge, but all we do know is that at the command of Christ to follow him, he does. He leaves all and he follows him. And this is crazy. It's crazy because it's one thing for, as we saw a rabbi, to call the uncouth fisherman perhaps a bit rough, perhaps a bit crusty on the outside. It's one thing for him to call them as disciples. It's another thing to call a traitor as a disciple. One commentator describes this. This is really like a tax collector. What is he really like? It's something, not, not perfectly, but something like a mob boss. Because of all the ways that they would use to get this money and, and they would extort it and they would, you would basically be paying them way beyond what they needed to give in taxes because these tax collectors would take that for their own. And if they didn't get it, they would use their soldiers and those around them to force it out of you. They were like mob payments. You, you used to pay to, 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 for the protection so that they wouldn't come and destroy you. Well, this is something like what the tax collector was. For Jesus to call him, that's, that's strange. It's scandalous to the ears of the Jews. It would be like if we were setting up a, a mission trip and we decided to go to the local mob boss and said, would you like to come with us? You wouldn't do that in your own minds. Now, obviously that is a good practice. We don't go out and call that. But Jesus in his mission and Jesus as the Son of God and his power and his authority, knowing who he would call, does call them to prove that point. He calls sinners and makes even Levi a tax, a tax collector, one of his own. And so this tax collector responds. It says that he, left, he leaves everything. He rose and followed him. And that term, he, he left everything, is significant. It doesn't mean clearly that he, he left all possessions of every kind. Clearly not. He holds a feast at his house for Jesus following this. But what that means is he turned from it all. He turned from the tax booth. He turned from that position. He gave it up. He turned from what he was doing and followed Christ. And in that sense, he really did turn from everything to follow him, to follow this rabbi, this teacher. And that's that scandalous call. It's quick. It doesn't take long, but then it leads into this next scandal. So not only did he call him, then Levi gathers together all his friends and other tax collectors and holds a feast. And, and why is that? And this is important for the context. The context here is that Levi, being transformed, wants others, those he had known, his comrades, to know this as well, to know the Messiah. And so he calls a feast and brings them together. And that's the setting. The situation isn't just simply some gathering of tax collectors that Jesus decides to crash. It's a feast held to bring them to him. And so Jesus goes and his disciples go as well, but now here is even another scandal. The Pharisees, who we had seen last time and will continue to see, are now set up as the opponents of Christ. Those who oppose his mission and doubt and question him. And here they call into question the company he keeps. That, that guy, he's no good. Look who, he's, look who he's with. Look who he's spending time with. Look who he's, he's breaking bread and drinking with. How dare he? How dare he do this thing? It's described the people who come as tax collectors and, if you, and others, is what it first says, tax collectors and others, and the Pharisees give us a description of who they think these others are. Tax collectors and sinners. It's a broad group, broad designation. 
to try to put in modern terms, let's just roll with that, that idea of like a mob boss. It's like taking a group of crooked politicians, mob bosses, those who sold out, those who would fraternize with them, and their entourages, those whose company they would keep, an unsavory lot. Quite corrupt. I don't think the, the Pharisees had a wrong description of them. They were indeed the tax collectors and sinners who had gathered there. And Jesus will spend time with them. Uh, to, 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 again, bring out this idea of scandal as well as the, the way Christ has truly come, I, I want to give another example. It would be as if we had seen Jesus, this religious teacher, eating and drinking with the, the members of the LGBTQ community. It's as if they, they're gathered and he's with them. And, and what would we think? How, how can he spend time with them? Doesn't his mere presence there condone their, their life? That's what we might think. We might think he can't eat with such people. Doesn't he know that he's giving them approval by associating with them? We might say something like, I'm all for evangelism and I think they need the gospel, but you can't compromise God's righteousness to do it. And that's true. It's an absolutely true statement. You can't compromise God's righteousness to do it. But, but here's the issue. Is it a compromise of Christ's righteousness, of God's righteousness, to spend time to treat people with respect for a greater purpose in not a sinful setting? Is it actually wrong and a compromise to show fellowship with them? And the answer is, of course, no. You see, to push that reasoning, we, we couldn't even have the Messiah come, could we? If it's scandalous for him to come to this group of tax collectors and sinners and even eat and drink with them, is it not a greater scandal for the Son of God even to come to earth to us to do the same? The, that reasoning that would say he can't be with them denies that he could even come to this earth. There's a self-righteous attitude there. There's a self-righteous attitude that says, hey, he can come to, to us, the covenant people, but, but not them. They are so unworthy. And, and what? The Pharisees aren't? We're not? We, we owe his presence and fellowship more because, because what? Our sins are not as bad. See, as we go through this text, I, I want us to hang our applications on, on two hooks, I would call it. And to summarize them, I'll say it's the application of the slap and the application of the salve. A slap is one to wake us up and to show us sin, to convict and that's what should happen in this text as we see ourselves and could see even the, the pharisaical heart in ourselves. We need to be slapped. The other hook is that salve. A salve is designed to comfort and encourage and soothe. And we see that here in the very purpose of what Jesus says, because we are sinners who need him. And that's the way we need to apply it, to put to death in us the pharisaical heart that might, might mirror the same idea and as well be encouraged in our own sins, that Jesus comes to sinners such as we are. 
So it's true we must never compromise righteousness, but we also must never compromise love and the gospel. And that's why I think the setting is important, right? You see, again, it's not as if Jesus had, has been passing on, on the road and there's this debauched celebration and he goes, guys, let's go. It's not what's going on. It's not like it's that. It is, though, fellowship with sinners and that's scandalous enough to our self-righteous minds, or at least can be. We need to understand his, his love but we also need to show wisdom. I'll give another example, sticking with that. The let, let's say the LGBTQ community. Let's let's say that. Do, does it mean then? Do we overpress it? And does it mean we show no wisdom in in any way we would fellowship with them? Of course not. Does it mean from what Jesus does here that you should attend a a, a, a gay wedding? That you're there to, to reach them and fellowship with them. Well, no, we need wisdom. We need to understand just what the situation and setting is. Does our attendance there truly lend approval? Are we truly giving our endorsement, even by our presence there, to something that is wrong? That we have to, we have to truly take that and follow that and have wisdom. And that's what Jesus isn't doing. Jesus isn't showing to be, he's showing himself to be unwise. It's not in such a situation and a setting, but he is going out to them that we would see to be, you can't go to them, they're untouchable. They're, they're the, the crowd to avoid. But Jesus goes to sinners, so we need to feel the slap, we need to sense the salve, we need to apply this with, with wisdom, as any text of Scripture does, and this, this text gives us plenty Plenty of application for us to see how to apply it well and in wisdom and to draw lines, but as well that, that fundamental truth that we're all sinners who need a Savior and that we don't set ourselves up as superior or owing God's presence, but that group doesn't. We're better than them. That's really what the Pharisees were saying. They wouldn't have had a problem if this great miracle worker and teacher Jesus came and, and spent his time with them and healing their infirmities and teaching them and being one of the gang and one of the guys, they wouldn't have had a problem with that. They have a problem that he goes and preaches and spends time with the scandalous of life, failing to realize that such were they. And that's the application for ourselves as well. Jesus shows that the gospel mission is to come to save those who need it. His words don't mean the Pharisees are already good. He's not saying that you're already righteous and have no need of a physician. It's actually basically saying in his self-righteousness, I haven't come to save the righteous as if there were any. There aren't. I have come to save sinners, and the Pharisees should have seen themselves in that. For Jesus has come to earth. He was doing what the Pharisees saw as wrong. Because he came to this group of people, but he needed to come to sinners. Let's not think for a second that we are a better quality of sinner. That's not what we do when we look at those who are even living a very sinful lifestyle. We, we acknowledge the sin, but we don't put ourselves superior. It's grace. We don't boast. We don't even boast in our current position now. What do I mean by that? It would be very easy for us to say, yeah, we were such as them, but aren't any longer. 
Now we're better. What a self-righteous attitude that doesn't take into account the grace that we've been given and the love that we should show to all, even as we don't compromise the truth or righteousness, but bring the gospel and show its sense on our life. There are sins that are worse than others, and that's not what I'm saying either. It's not as if every sin is as equally horrific in God's eyes. All sins are worthy of condemnation to eternity of hell. And yet I could phrase it this way, in that eternity of hell, there will be greater punishments given out for the greater gravity of the sins. God is a just God. There are punishments that are worse for certain sins that are worse. We don't deny that. And yet we see that, but any sin has already dishonored the name of God. Any sin places us in that category. And so would we really be audacious enough to say, yeah, but but the eternity of hell that we had gained wasn't quite as bad as their eternity in hell? And, And how ridiculous! We must realize that we have hierarchies of sins in our own minds that is unhelpful. And though there may be a perfect hierarchy of sin in God's mind, that's not the way we normally construct it. Normally, we have sins that we hold to be worse than others, and it's formed through church culture, it's formed through the society and its culture, it's formed through our own person and being and what we struggle with. And so we might say something like, well, lust and sins of lust, that's bad. And then not care at all that maybe we go out on the weekends and get drunk or push the limits, as if that's not bad itself. We take this hierarchy and we judge all according to that twisted version of a hierarchy, just like the Pharisees are. The Pharisees wouldn't have said that they're perfect, but they would have said, but that's worse, and we don't do that. No, they were just proud and self-righteous, but what does God condemn as a greater sin? In God's hierarchy of sin, the covenant community and self-righteousness and pride are often judged far worse than what the sinners in the world do, the ignorant sinners or the foolish sinners. It doesn't justify what they're doing, but it shows us that we who know better for us to have pride, for us to look down at sinners and think they're unworthy, and they're not even worthy of our presence, Right? So the Pharisees are saying, hey, we don't even spend time with them. How can he? And so they set themselves up as more holy than God. And so do we when we do the same. Jesus has come for the sick and those who need him. And yet we're so often thinking that that person doesn't deserve it. And so we judge God and his holiness as less than our own because we're too holy to fraternize with them. But God clearly isn't. Are we more holy than God? Are we more holy than the Son of God who had no problem fellowshipping with sinners? Understanding what that means correctly, fellowshipping, showing them kindness and gentleness and love, even if he didn't capitulate or endorse? Can we do that? We need to feel that slap We need to feel the salve as well, that healing ointment. Aren't you thankful that Jesus associates with sinners? Isn't that a a message that you need to hear and know and be comforted by? 
When you stand convicted of sin and you smell it all over you, when you sense your self-righteous pride and realize that you're the biggest fraud of all, when you realize that you're worthless, that you've never actually truly done a perfect work, but something that was always stained with your own sin, when you realize that your own heart is an idle factory, that your eyes are blind and your ears are deaf to all the truth, when you desire what is repugnant before God and do it, even if it be in your own mind or in quiet and no one else might know, even if it doesn't, even if it doesn't quite elevate itself to be one of the really bad sins in our minds, when you know that about yourself, you hear Jesus say, I'm a physician that comes to the sick. That's what we need because that's what we are. I don't have the, the facts and all the, the statistics about this, but I know historically when there was the, the bubonic plague in Europe, it was the clergy who often went to go minister to them. And they were the clergy that came to those because it was their duty. And that's why many of them died. Many of them contracted the plague and died. It was, again, I don't have the statistics, but it was a, a quite an amazing majority of those who had went out to go serve these sick and dying who would die themselves. And we look at that and you say, that is quite a sacrifice. They went and they did their duty. They went to the sick. But, but you see there that they, they didn't have the power to withstand it. But you see the heart. And, and there we are, we're, we're the plague-ridden sinners, and here comes Jesus, the physician to us, and, and he can't contract our defilement. But he comes to cleanse, and, and there's the physician we need, and to know he doesn't stay away, because he's come to such as us. As the tax collectors and the sinners, he's come to such, well, like that lady R.C. Sproul had encountered, come to such as the collaborators with the Nazis who needed the gospel just like anyone else. And fellowships with them, what an amazing truth. What an amazing comfort to know Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's what we need to hear. It's beautiful imagery what he says. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Again, understanding that Jesus isn't saying you don't need a physician to the Pharisees. The Gospel of Luke clearly shows what he thinks about their spirituality, and it's nothing. They need him as much as anyone else, but to these people, he's giving a well-reasoned argument. I am the physician. Who should I be with? if not the sick. We don't blame a doctor for going to minister to the sick. You don't, as one commentator says, you don't blame a plumber for cleaning out a sewer. You don't blame a mechanic because he works on broken down cars. You don't blame a mortician because he messes with corpses. If Jesus is a physician, where else should he be but among the sick and terminally ill? That's where he should be. The Pharisees don't see it because they're blinded by that self-righteousness. Why would the physician and giver of good news come to those who don't need it? And, and this is somewhat of an underlying sort of underneath the text condemnation of the Pharisees. And why would I come to you who don't think you need a physician? But these do. Now we have to be, again, careful 
We have to avoid errors. I've heard texts like these, even this text, used to support all kind of liberalism, all kind of false statements like you see here. Jesus doesn't judge the sinner. Jesus accepts all. That's just not true. It's not true from what even our text is saying. Jesus is describing those he's with as those in need of a physician, which clearly means he's rendering their condition as bad, as sinful, as dire. They need his help. It doesn't condone it, and that's what some want to do. They want to rip it from its context and and tell us that that means you can't condemn these sins or these orientations or, or, or any of these things. And then they'll take it and use it and redefine what love is and say what true love is is to come to people but not to tell them to repent, not to tell them of the danger of their sin. And even, in fact, they take the gospel out of the gospel. They took, take the good news out of the good news. And what it becomes is, you know, you're, you're pretty good the way you are. You don't really need a physician. That's kind of what it amounts to because they condone all the things that is destroying their life and will keep them from the Father and will walk them down to the pit of hell. And they say, we're loving you because we're accepting you in all that you do. But that's not what Jesus is doing. He doesn't do that for a second. He's there to minister. He's already changed Levi's life. He's already called him. And Levi's bringing the others to experience the same change. Jesus doesn't compromise. And that's exactly what we need. You see, we don't need that. We don't need allowance. We need deliverance. And that's what the people need to hear when they come That's what the sick need to hear. What is the worst thing to tell a sick, ridden, terminally ill patient? You're pretty good. It's not that bad. You know what all we need to do here? Just put some band-aids on that. Quick quick say up, I have faith in Jesus, and you're fine. You don't need to adjust anything. It's the worst physician ever. The true physician comes and he deals with the issues, he deals with the sins, and that's our heart. And that's that encouragement, that's that salve. We may want nothing to do with sinners in our self-righteous pride, but Jesus does. What, what humility and what righteousness. We sang it before the service, and each verse ends with, Jesus sinners doth receive. What a truth. What a statement we all need. Those who want nothing to do with sinners, that's the one side, and those who only want to condone and permit sin, and that's the other side, both miss the message. Jesus has everything to do with sinners, but his business is transformation. His business is of a physician. And what do physicians do? They heal. They treat. They bring to life. They restore life in that idea, and that's what Jesus is doing. What then are we prepared to do in our own hearts? Well, we should, again, identify with Levi and the tax collectors here. and Know that we are the sinners who need the physician. But what else do we do? Well, we can't judge others. We can't have a self-righteous spirit that thinks we're better in uh, describing this text and in preaching on it, Dr. Beach had a helpful way. Dr. Beach from Mid-America had a helpful way of describing this type of self-righteous spirit. 
When we think about Jesus and say, He's for us, not for them, until they become like us. Jesus is for us, not for them, until they become like us. And that's what we do. That's what we do when we might see someone walking on the road, and and perhaps we see someone dressed immodestly, and we think to ourselves, Wow, what what has become of this world? How dare they walk like that? Or we drive by what? What if we drive by the, the, the LGBTQ parade? And, and, and then what do we do? Is that wrong? Is, is the lifestyle wrong? Is what they are promoting wrong? Absolutely. In fact, we can adequately call them a parade of sinners. But what? Do we drive by and stick up our noses and then say, but, but we are so much better And even have this idea that I'm very thankful, just like the Pharisee later in Luke will say, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like them, and that in fact I'm so far superior, that you'll answer my prayer, that you'll listen to me. that's, That's not what it is. It isn't Jesus is for us, not for them, until they become like us. No, it's that we all rather become like him and need to be cleansed by him. So what are we prepared to do when we come across the the thieving businessman or the the s'more the, the 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 poor smelly drug addict who would come into our midst here and what if they walked through those doors right now what would they encounter What would it be Would they find themselves entering a place and feel shunned and avoided and not good enough Brothers and sisters that's the way they feel already even if they wouldn't admit that. It's a broken life of a sinner. We know it. And and what is the message they need? Yeah, confirmation. You really are that bad. Now get out. We have no place for you here. Is, is that what's in our heart? Or is it the idea of come in and know the cleansing of the Lord? Come in and know fellowship here amongst those who've been healed by this physician who needs him every day and couldn't stand without him. We are then, congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, aptly called physician assistants. That's what we are to be, to assist the physician. That's what the church is. Physicians' assistants stand by the physician. They, they give the instruments. They help with the, the surgeries. They're there to administer the same care. And that's what we should be. We shouldn't be those standing outside judging the patient where the physician's assistants there to bring the message of the physician. And so as we leave today, I'm going to increase, I'm going to add one more hook to hang the sign so that we understand the message. So here's the three hooks of this message that we can hang the ideas and walk away from it and know how we're supposed to live. And that first hook we already know, the slap of the message. And the slap of the message is that we are too often the Pharisees, we are too often self-righteous. And we need to convict that sin. There's the slap, so that's the one hook, a slap. And then the second hook, it's that salve, it's that balm, and that's healing, and we need to be comforted to know in our own sin, the physician comes to such as us. He brings healing. And then the third hook is the call to be physician assistants. The call to go out and do likewise of what we see here in Christ's serving 
the people in love and humility, bringing a message not of superiority on our part, but a message that directs to the only one who heals. A slap, a salve, a call to be those physician assistants. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we come before you and pray for humility. Pray for hearts that see ourselves as sinners, that see ourselves as those who need that, that forgiveness more than anyone else. For as Paul will say, he is the chief of sinners. And we can say of ourselves, we are the chief of sinners who need healing. Comfort us with this text to know that healing only comes from the great physician. As well, Lord, we pray, and we don't ask this lightly, slap us with this text. May we not be those who in a pride or arrogance see ourselves as superior and see others as not worthy of a good news. And Lord, as well, we pray that we would heed a call that you've given to your people and to the church, to your disciples, to be your physician assistants and to serve others, knowing they need this gospel as much as we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.